Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. I I read something, I don't know, maybe a month ago um, about paradoxes, and it just started me thinking. um, And what I want to look at is the paradox of the Christian life, because the Christian life is a paradox. Now, obviously, before we get too far along, I need to define terms, exactly what is a paradox. It's actually not a paradox, okay? Although that's not a bad description. It it comes from the Greek word pair, which means to be beside, and, and doxical means... Uh, a statement or a belief. So it's two things that are side by side and they're used to describe something, but they're apparently oppose one another. The obvious one that everybody always talks about is jumbo shrimp. How can it something be jumbo and be a shrimp? Um, actually, that one's easily explained because shrimp doesn't refer to size, it refers to the species of being that you're eating. And I realize it's not kosher, but I'm just thankful we're not under the kosher law anymore because I really love shrimp. Um, but one of the classic ones is, is the, um, this statement. And if you think about it a little bit, it, is ob- it becomes obvious what a paradox is. It says, I am a Cretan, meaning someone from the Isle of Crete, and I tell you the truth when I say all Cretans are liars. Now, if you think of that that long, too long, it'll give you a headache. But if I'm a Cretan and I d- proclaim to you this is the truth, that all Cretans are liars, I just said I told you the truth, but I'm a liar, so that can't be the truth. It, it just, it, it's a circular reasoning and it, it will never, ever work. There are a lot of things like that that are actually part of the gospel, that when you look at them on the surface, it makes absolutely no sense. And and, and the, the amazing thing is, this is how God chose to describe the life of being a Christian, of being a Christ follower to us. Let's start in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because this is not just my idea. This is well established in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's go to um, down to verse 20. And I'm not going to comment a lot about this. I just want to read through it and just pick a couple of highlights. This is Paul. And he's, he's writing to a church that had every manifestation of the Spirit of God that there is. They had miracles. They had healings. They, they spoke in tongues. They were the wild, charismatic Pentecostals of their day. And yet, for all God manifests in Himself in their midst, they still had a lot of problems. Well, Paul's writing to them in verse 20. He says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe or the educated? Where is the disputer of this age, the philosopher? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The philosophers, and they're still doing it today, they will climb mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain trying to figure out God. And all they got to do is listen to the simplicity of the gospel and they will know God. And until you know God, you can't figure out God. It's like someone saying, well, I know your wife. How do you say, how can you say that? Well, because we've been friends for a long time. Well, you may have been friends with her for years, but you don't know her. Because she doesn't reveal her innermost being to very many people. I've seen it. I know her. Because we have a relationship. We have a deep relationship. 33, 34, I don't remember, I lost count. Almost 34, almost 35 years. So, I mean, we're to the point where we, we not only finish each other's thoughts, she gives me my thoughts. Husbands, this is not where you say amen. But this is, this is why God chose to, to, to use paradoxes or apparent paradoxes to, in, in, the, um, in sharing the gospel. The, the world is looking for great understanding. They have philosophers. I mean, you've got guys that have spent their entire life trying to make something very simple, very complicated. It reminds me of a guy who was going for his Ph.D. He turned in his thesis and he got it back from the thesis committee and they said, these are really good thoughts, but this is too easy to read. Redo it. Toughen up your vocabulary. Anybody without a degree could read this and understand it. And the guy said, that's what I'm going for. They said, well, that's not a Ph.D., not Ph.D. level work. Make it tougher. So he filed that one away and wrote one for the Ph.D. committee and had one that he put out for the public. This is exactly what Jesus did. If you look at all of Jesus' teaching, they would come with all these questions and he'd say, it's like a seed. He would simplify it to, the, to where the, the, the most ignorant, wayfaring fool could not misunderstand what he was saying. Verse 22. The Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God took all of these things that the world looks at and says, that's just crazy. 
That's stupid. It's foolishness. And God uses those things that the world despises to not only plant the message, but to grow the church, to grow God's kingdom so that we can all say, it's not me, it's him. The greatest example of that is Jesus himself. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He's the second person of the Godhead. He, he created the universe. He created the earth. And yet when he came to earth, he came to earth humbly, born as a child, completely helpless, required a mother and a father to raise him and provide for him. No fanfare. Just a humble birth in a manger, in a stable, And if you've ever been in a stable, it's not the greatest place in the world you'd want to have a baby. And yet, that's what God did. God said, I'm going to bring him in as the least so that he can be the greatest. Now, let's define a few other things. First of all, in this paradox, we need to assert, and and quite rightly, that Christianity is not a religion. It does have some religious aspects to it. James says our, our religion is this to um, provide for the widows and to feed the orphans. Basically, he says if you want to do some religious activity, you give to people who have no ability to give back to you. That's when you know your works are proper, in their proper place. When you're just going, you're doing things to bless people, not expecting anything back from them. Quite the opposite of what a lot of churches do, what a lot of Christians do, what a lot of worldly people do. I have nothing against Peyton Manning. I think he's probably a nice guy. I do appreciate all the things he's done for the children's uh, hospital here in Indy. But you notice his name is on the building. If you really want credit for your giving, you don't want anyone to know that you're giving. It ought to be anonymous. You're not out to heap praise upon yourself. You're just out to do what God's called you to do. Now, what do I mean by by religion? Let me give you these examples. Normally, following the tenets of a religion will make you a part of that religion. For example, if you follow the teachings of the prophet Muhammad, you are considered a Muslim. If you follow the teachings of Buddha, you are considered a Buddhist. But you can follow the teachings of Christ all you want. It does not make you a Christian. Go to 2 Timothy 3. Chuck, I'm sorry. I know I gave you a list. And now I'm adding on to it. But 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul describes people who do their best to follow the teachings of Jesus. And I've had a lot of people tell me in in discussions over the years, oh, I have a great deal of respect for, for Jesus. In fact, Muslims will tell you Jesus was a prophet. Not quite to the level of the prophet of Muhammad, but he was a prophet and they have great respect. He was a great moral teacher. No, Jesus was either the Son of God and the Savior of mankind or he was stark, raving, mad lunatic. There is no in-between. Because he claimed to be God in the flesh. Now, if you come up to me today and you say, 
glad to meet you. I'm God. I'm going to call the guys in the little white coats, and we're going to escort you and get you a big dose of Haldol. In case you don't know, Haldol is a drug they give to psychotics to bring them back to reality. So Jesus either was crazy or he was God. No two ways, no, there's no other choice. Paul describes people that, that want to follow Christ but not be in Christ. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. But know this, that in the last days, perilous or fierce times will come. Sort of looks like our everyday newspaper. Fierce times, perilous times. Why? For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5 is the key. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. From such people turn away. People who want to follow the teachings of Christ without accepting who Christ is as God and as their Savior are, have a form of godliness. They sound like Christians. They look like Christians. They go to church on Sunday. They have, you know, they have a gathering. When, when Gina and I were in, in Tulsa, we had, this was the early beginnings of cable. They had one religious station. But they had to um, share it with local broadcasters. They had TBN on at night. But during the day, they had local things. And, and I just happened to be fortunate enough, when I'd get home from school, I had about an hour and a half to grab a little lunch, maybe grab a quick nap, or just relax. And they had a Unitarian pastor on during that hour. And he used to just mock and make fun of Christians, you know, especially Oral Roberts, because we were in Broken Arrow, which is a suburb of Tulsa. And, I mean, he was, he was mocking, hateful towards Bible-believing Christians, and yet he called himself a Christian. You go to his church, they had a sanctuary. They had, occasionally, they, you would have a cross. They were usually pretty well hidden away. But instead of having the Bible preached, they'd have a, a poem. They'd have an inspirational reading. You know, they never had a sermon more than about 15 or 20 minutes because you just couldn't take much more. You know, they'd have a song service, and it was songs that would kind of, you know, you want to put some flowers in your hair and sing Kumbaya. Peace and love, everybody. Peace out. But it was a form of godliness, but it had no power. It could not change you. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, go over to the Gospel of John, the first chapter. First chapter of John talks about Jesus being the Word, being God incarnate. But in verse 10, Jesus gets to the point. Oh, sorry. Didn't read quite right because I was in Matthew. In verse 10 he said, speaking of Jesus, he said, He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God 
to those who believe in his name. First key, it always has to start with faith. Who were born, and this is the key, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That last phrase there makes it clear. To become a Christian, you have to be born again. Not of blood. That means natural blood. It means that's not your heredity. doesn't matter if your mom and your dad and your grandpa and your great-grandpa and as far back as you can look at your heritage, all of them were Christians. It does not make you a Christian. Now, there are advantages to being born into a Christian family, but sometimes there are disadvantages because a lot of times people think, well, I'm a Christian because I've gone to church all my life. I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but there was a time in my life that if someone who had asked me, are you a Christian, I would have said, well, yes, of course. I'm an American. Isn't everybody in America a Christian? I mean, I, re- I was raised in the 50s and in the early 60s were my formative years, and I just assumed that's how it was. If you were an American, we were a Christian nation, and you were a Christian by birthright. Nope, sorry. There is no birthright Christianity. There is a birthright Christianity, but it's an individual Christianity, not your, your natural heritage. He says also, not of flesh. That means a human decision. You can't just decide one day, okay, I'm going to become a Christian. That's what Tim, Paul was talking about in Timothy. People deciding, well, this is, this is pretty good. In fact, when Gina and I got together, all of the, the people that knew me um, saw a huge change in my life because when I fell in love with her, her one requirement, if you're going to date me and even think about getting serious, was you'll, you will be a dedicated Christian. So, you know, being slick guy I was, I thought, well, I'll just go to church. I can, I can act the part, you know. Well, I played around on that bank till I slid back in, and I realized my life was messed up. But I didn't make the decision. I, I got serious, but, but because I was serious, because I was suddenly going to church, and they could see my life was changing, my outward appearance, not, not necessarily, you know, I didn't suddenly become more handsome. I didn't suddenly become more eloquent. eloquent. But they could see a difference in me. And I had one of my friends, he taught school with me. He came to me, and he, the unfortunate part, he was a deacon in his church. He said, brother, don't get too far off. Don't get too, you know, don't become a Bible thumper. Don't get... Don't get crazy with this. Everybody needs a code to live by. Even if it's just the ten points of Buddha, you need something to live by. But don't get fanatical. And I'm thinking, is this what your church preaches? I don't want something to live by. I had rules. I revolted against every rule every human being has ever tried to put on me. I'm, a, I'm a, um, a horse that does not like a bridle. And God doesn't try to bridle you. He offers you choices. But He's not going to try to bridle you and force you to do things. But He does change you. That's the point. If it's not an inward change, it doesn't matter what the outside looks like. 
Jesus described the Pharisees that way. You're whitewashed sepulchers. You're a, you're a pretty coffin, basically. I, I always, and I don't fault anybody, families can do what they want to do. But, you know, when I've been in charge of funerals, I don't care what kind of, I just want to cast, I don't want something to put a body in. Because let's face it, after three or four days, you're putting it in the ground. Nobody's ever going to see it again. Who cares if it has brass handles? Who cares if it's hardwood? It's got a dead body in it that eventually will rot. It's only through the power of Christ when he returns that that body can come out and have life again. And the casket's not going to count. Well, I don't care about the outward unless the outward change is due to an inward change. That's the only thing that, that counts. And then the last thing John said here, it's not nor of the will of man, but of God. It, it can't be someone's decision. You, you cannot save your children. If your children are in, in revolt, revolt against Jesus, against the gospel, you can pray for them. You can certainly back the devil out of their lives and give them an opportunity to understand the truth. But you cannot make that decision for them. Every person has to come to Jesus individually and bow his knee willingly. And hope to God, would to God, that everyone does it. But I also know the Bible teaches that the way is broad for most people. The path that we want to take, that God wants us to take, is a narrow path. And it's going to appear foolish. That's the point. Now, this Christian life, once you do get born again, note this, because this is one of the keys. Go to Romans chapter 4, verse 6. This is talking about um, Abraham. And Paul is using Abraham's life as an example for us. In the true Christian life, the Christian life does not produce faith. But faith produces life. You can't impose and decide, I'm just going to have faith. You have to allow the life of God to bring the faith out of you. And it comes from the Word. And it's, there on, it's that way on purpose. Uh, Romans 4, um, I said verse 6, I meant verse 16. Paul is talking about the promise and how we're granted the promise. He said, therefore this promise is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham is our example because Abraham exercised faith in what God said. God said it, Abraham said, okay, I choose to believe it and I'm going to act on it. And it's not just believing. Someone uh, that went through the graduation ceremonies with me when we were um, um, down at, at where I'm at my graduation ceremony last week had made the comment that um, having a right theology is not enough. And I commented back to him, and I have to remember how I said it now. I lost the thought. What you believe, what you truly believe, or excuse me, the only thing you truly believe is what you live. Everything else is just 
mental assent. You can say, I believe this. I believe it. I, I've used the example that I used to listen to the kids in my class and, and um, they would say, well, I believe in God. James has an answer. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons in hell believe and tremble. What you believe doesn't count unless it's reflected in your life. How you live will really tell me what you believe. And by how you live, I don't mean how you act on Sunday morning. I mean how do you act and how do you feel and what do you think when no one is around. When no one other than yourself and God will know what your action is going to be. It will be secret from the entire world what do you choose to do. That's what you believe. That's the faith. That's the faith in God's word because then it's because this is truly me. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to look at this a little bit different here. And then we're actually going to look at some of the examples of, of um, some of these paradoxes. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23. We're going to read through verse 25. For you have been born again, but not to a life, and I'm, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. Now, that living, eternal living Word of God is represented in the Bible, but this is a direct reference to Jesus. The Bible is the word we act on, but it's His grace and His power and His life that's born inside of us. Verse 24, as the scripture says, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Your life is eternal only if and only because you have put your faith into an eternal living word. If your faith is not planted in an eternal word, then it's not eternal in nature. That's why it is so important that we know why we believe what we believe. If you have no idea what you believe or why you believe what you believe, you can be pulled off course very easily. Someone can come with a persuasive philosophical argument and confuse you and mix you up in a heartbeat. <clears throat> but if you know, if you have planted your faith and your heart in the eternal word represented in the Bible that is born of Christ, and you not only know it in your heart, but you know it in your head, you can't be persuaded. You can't be moved. But there again, if you go back to the Gospels, Jesus told the parable of the two houses. The two houses were both built. They both looked great. One was built on sand, which when the storm came, it fell. One was built on a firm foundation of rock. When the storm came, it did not fall. Notice both of them had storms of life. One fell and one did not. And the only difference in their building was that one heard and did what he heard. And one heard and believed without carrying it off into actions. 
You can believe whatever you want. It's what you believe and act on that counts. That puts you on a firm foundation. And then your house will not be moved. This pattern of faith is the basis of all Christian life. How you begin something is how you will, the same process you will have to go through to continue and to end. If you start in faith, you have to continue in faith and it will end with faith. If you start with works, you're going to have to keep working hard. You've just jumped on the gerbil wheel. I love that. I think it I forget who it was. Somebody made the comment um, back near Memorial Day about the, the 500 and I love motor racing, but it is true. You watch motor racing, they go very fast in a circle for many hours and get nowhere. That's a life of works. You're like a dribble on a wheel. You're getting great exercise, but you're not making any progress. You're standing still working hard. It's when we put our faith in the Word and we act on it and live it, then we make progress. Then you see change. Now, this faith will look like foolishness to the world. And I'll give you uh, uh, some examples. And I'm going to do one here that's dangerous for every pastor in the world because people get really offended when you talk about money. But it's true. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to read, this is from New King James. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 17. Paul says to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. That means excessively proud. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The Mount's translation of that same verse says, Urge the rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who grants all things richly for our enjoyment. I love that, that part there where King James says, don't trust in uncertain riches. Mount says, don't set your hope on those riches. If you remember in Hebrews chapter 11, the verse 1, it says, now faith is... Um, wow. Totally drew a blank on that one. Give me a second. I'll have to look it up. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Mount says, don't set your hope on uncertain riches. Now the paradox here is, the world will tell you, you want money? Work hard. Get all you can. Can all you get. Sit on the can. That's why, you know, and, and, and a symptom of that is people that are really trusting in that just went crazy this week when their 401ks dipped mightily on Friday. Britain decided they didn't want to be part of the European Union. You would have thought the world was ending. Did mess up a lot of people's end times theology. That's a whole other subject we won't get into. But you cannot have your hope and your hope for your finances based on where the stock market is. I guarantee you Bill Gates lost more money on Monday than this entire congregation will ever earn in their lifetime. And the man didn't even break a sweat. 
Why? Because he knows how to earn it back. And he also knows that eventually it'll probably come back just all on its own. Just hang on. We're in a, we're in a rough sea. If your house is based on the rock, founded on the rock, then your house will stand. Your, our, our faith is not based on what Wall Street does. It's based on who we are, are um, serving. But while the world tells you, get all you can, can all you can get, sit on the can, God says, do you want to be rich? Then give. Um, Luke 6.38 Give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use it will be measured back to you. The difference is, is how do you look at your money? Is your money something that's going to keep you safe? Give you security? Or is it seed for you to plant? Now I will tell you I heard all of my Christian life people say you can't outgive God. Well, that sounds good, not really true. You can't outgive God if you give where God tells you to give and give when He tells you to give. The key to all of this is figuring out what God's will is for you, not following a set, rote set of rules but figuring out what God has spoken to you. And, and the message here is pretty clear. To whom much is given, much is required. People will argue usually, well, and I've heard people t- had people tell me, well, tithing is not part of the New Testament. Well, the New Testament talks about tithing. But it also wasn't part of the law. It predated the law. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek hundreds of years before the law was ever written. So tithing is just a principle that God has put in. And in fact, he says, uh, this is from the New Living Translations, Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Verse 23 or 24 there cannot sum it up any more clearly. Give freely and become wealthy, be stingy and lose it all. It comes down to a heart attitude. And I have, there are a thousand excuses. Well, I can't afford it. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. You can't afford not to. Jesus said, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. He did not say, your treasure will follow your heart. He said, your heart will follow your treasure. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with having a 401k. You ought to be saving for your retirement. You ought to be saving for, you ought to have a rainy day fund. But if God comes to you and says, I want you to take your rainy day fund and I want you to sow it all into this ministry. If you can't do it, now I don't mean you may not sweat bullets over it. I've sweat quite a few bullets when God's told me to do some things that challenged me financially. Challenged me big time. But I knew that I knew that I knew God said, give this away. 
and my brain is saying, I may need that next week. Where's your faith? My faith is in God to supply my need, not my bank account to supply my need. You have got to be willing to risk everything and trust God to bring it back if God tells you to give everything. Jim said it this morning. You know, we we argue about the tithe. When it comes right down to it, it's all God's. (laughs) Your next breath is God's. Your first breath and your last breath, everything you are, everything you will ever have, all of it belongs to God. Every bit of it. It's just a matter of figuring out. In fact, I'll be honest with you, the tithe is just a starting point. Most of us can afford to give beyond the tithe. Well, brother, I got a house payment, a car payment. Well, maybe you're living a little above your... I'm not going to go there. Malachi. This is New Living Testament also. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Notice right there it says, bring all of the tithes, plural. For an observant Jew... From almost all observant Jews, first century all the way to to present tense, they normally give 30 to 40 percent of their income. You want to Jews prosperous, prosper wherever you put them? Because they believe in this. They believe in the tithe. They believe in giving. And they don't just give 10%, they have tithes. They give 30 to 40 percent most of the time. Look at most Mormons. They will give automatically 20% to their church. And most of them are very well off. Why? Because it's a principle that works whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. God says if you are stingy, you'll lose it. If you're, if you're generous, I'll, I'll plant it back. That's a principle I've put in the earth. It's called seed time and harvest. It depends on your heart. Malachi again, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, there is a threefold thing he's going to do for you. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. And there's a third one that's not there. I will rebuke the devourer in your behalf. God said the only other time in the Bible where it talks about opening the windows of heaven is when God spoke about the flood of Noah. He opened the heaven's window and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and the entire world was flooded. Those same windows, he's prepared a blessing that he wants to. But it requires a paradox of you giving it away so that you can he can have an avenue to bless you. But then he will also... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. He'll also pour out blessings so great that you don't have room to take it in. And he'll also rebuke the devourer. You can have tremendous assets and have tremendous money coming in if you got more going out. It doesn't count for a thing. It just means you're a big exchange house. You know, we, we look at... Uh, um, um, People have complained mightily for years about all of the money that big oil makes. 
They have profit, you know, profits in the billions and billions and billions. But what you don't realize is most oil companies have a profit margin smaller than any other business. They take in trillions of dollars just to get billions in profits. It's a lot to me. A few thousand is a lot to me. But they are, they are spending more money um, than most countries do to drill oil, refine oil, and sell oil at a very, very narrow margin. But they can make a lot because they watch what they do. You can take that same company, if they lose that margin just a little bit, they can be in bankruptcy in a heartbeat. It's not how much you make, it's how much you make versus how much you spend and how much you keep. God, if, you're, if your heart is right, your spending will be right, and when God blesses you, you will have an abundance left over. The, biggest, the, the greatest statistics is most of the giving in our country, and we are the greatest givers in, of any country in the world, but most of the, the giving, vast majority, total dollar worth, comes from the, the, the lower third of the income bracket in this country. The 1% give the least. And I'm not talking about percentage-wise. I'm talking about total dollar amount given any given year. The bottom third percentage, and I would guarantee you, the vast majority of those people are Christians. And we give more money, total dollars, than all the rest of the rich people combined. In fact, we had a presidential candidate Several years ago, he, didn't, he was trying to run for president. He never got the nomination. He had income, I don't know, close to a million dollars, and his giving was something like $3,000 for the year. And I looked at it, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? That's all you can scrape up? That right there tells me I don't want that man as my president. I don't want somebody with a stingy heart because he's going to want to grab and hold on and usually, you know, they always say they're coming after the rich. They do. What you don't realize a lot of times is you're the rich. Now, why, does, why is God even interested in this? Well, go to Deuteronomy. Chapter 14, verse 23. I'm going to read it in, in three different versions. I'm going to read New King James and then New Living Translation, and then in the message. Deuteronomy chapter 14. This is written to the Jews about tithing. Verse 23. Well, let's back up into verse... No, no, let's just stay with verse 23. And you shall eat... Before the Lord your God, this is talking about the tithe of the grain, in the place where he cho chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. The purpose of the tithe is not to that God really cares much about your money, but He does want to teach you to fear Him. New Living Translation, 
the, that very end phrase says, doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. The message says, in this way you will learn to live in deep reverence before God, your God, as long as you live. The whole purpose of giving, the whole purpose, God does want you blessed, but the real purpose of God asking you to tithe and asking you sometimes to do hard things with your giving. And believe me, when, when it comes down to I have a choice because things just got tight, I've got, I can either pay my tithe or I can pay a bill. If you pay your tithe and not your bill, you're going to have to trust the Lord, your God, and fear and believe that He will bring the money in. It requires great faith to do that. But if, you, if your attitude is, well, I just can't give because I might not have enough to pay my bills, it shows that you're not trusting God very, very much with your finances. But it's a paradox. You want, you have to be free and generous and give. Amen? And let me just meddle here for a minute. A lot of us are going to go out to eat after the church service. Do you know the number one things that waiters and waitresses dread on Sunday afternoon? To be assigned a table where everybody bows their head and prays over their food. Now, I'm not kidding, and to be honest with you, I'm not pleased with it. Because they know, historically, they're going to get a lousy tip. And it's not right. If you pray over your food... And I'm going to get strong here because I'll be honest with you, this makes me mad because it puts me in a bad light and I don't like people putting me in a bad light. If you're going to pray over your food at a restaurant, you better give 20%. I don't care how bad the service is because you just told the world we're Christians. And if you're going to show the world that Christians are stingy and, and, and tight with their money, then please don't pray over your food. Just act like you're a heathen. They won't, they won't be surprised. And second to that, and I'll probably have to edit this one out of the tape, if you've got a fish on the back of your car, please pay attention how you drive. I've had people think, my, my only thought is I hope to God they bought that car with that fish on the back because they sure not, you know, they're telling everybody and their brother that, that they're number one. It's like, wow, what a witness. Oh, I... Done, quit preaching and gone to meddling. All right, let's look at the, diff- the, the next um, paradox, which is if you want to be free, and everyone will tell you, I want to be free. It's the whole gamut of what, what rules behavior in our world. It's the reason that there are so many conflicts over moral codes. And, and, and let me just be plain. Morality is great, but morality, being moral doesn't make you a Christian either. Now, there's, there, there is no point in being a Christian and living an immoral lifestyle. That one doesn't fit either. But the whole battle of our culture right now over morality comes down to, well, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And to be honest with you, I see a lot of Christians want to be more American than they want to be Christians. Because that's part of our DNA in, in the United States of America. Bless God, you're not going to tell me anything I can do or don't do. 
There's value in that attitude at times, but man, it's a dangerous attitude to have too. Paul says very clearly we're to submit to our governmental authorities. Now, there are times when it, you need to stand up and say, no, this is not right and I'm not going down that road. But there may be consequences. But don't, you, you, you can do it without having a stinking attitude. But if you truly want to be, be free, and I'm going to close with this one and we'll, we'll pick this up next time. If you truly want to be free, it's required that you become a slave. You have no choice about whether you're going to be a slave or not a slave. And I've had people, and I preach grace, I preach grace pretty hard. I've had people tell me, oh, I'm not a slave, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm in the kingdom. Well, yes, you are. And if you are, are, are a child, you get to ride on daddy and mommy's coattails. I remember uh, in Gina's and, and my life, we had a period not too many years ago where things got really rough. They got rough financially. We had pressure. I mean, I just, I wanted to quit. Did quit for a little while. Just checked out. I'll go to work, go home, go to work, go to home. I don't care about anything else. <clears throat> I joked with my dad. I said, Dad, I'm ready to come home. I left at 17. I missed about four or five years living off you. I want to come back home and just live off you for another four or five. Make up for, you know, being an idiot at 17 and going out on my own because I had the world by the tail. And when I let go, it turned around a bit hard. You know what my dad's response was? <laughs> no, thank you. You want to come visit? That's fine. But, you know, even fish turns bad after about three days. So, you know, your visits home ought to be about the lifespan of a fish. Three days, go on back to your house, support yourself. Now, now don't, don't misunderstand me. Uh, my dad was an extremely generous man. Anytime I had a problem, he was more than willing to help. He was always my financier of last resort. And I would turn to him more than once as, a, as an adult and said, Dad, I'm desperate. i got to have couple of hundred, couple of thousand, I got to have it. And I don't, I, I, I can go get a payday loan, pay 20%, or I can borrow it from you. You can just go to his little bank, come out with that big old fat envelope, start counting out $100 bills, how much you need. Now, I always made sure I paid him back because I didn't want to abuse that privilege. But as Christians, we are sons and we are daughters. And when we are children, we sit at daddy's table. And Dad provides everything that we have. But as we grow up, there comes a time where if you want to be free, you have to go to work for Dad. And you have to start investing your time and your energy and your efforts in Dad's business. And if God is our Father, His business is the business of the gospel. And he doesn't just expect us to sit back and, and live the, um, the blessed life, the prosperous life. And I believe in prosperity. Physically, mentally, materially, I believe in prosperity in every aspect of your life. God wants you to prosper. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to be stinking filthy rich. He wants some of you to be multimillionaires. Now, he's not going to want you to hoard all that cash up. He's going to give you places to sow that money. But he wants you to prosper. But he doesn't just want you to prosper and sit back and do nothing. 
Part of that prosperity is it allows you to have some leisure time to invest it into the gospel, to go out and witness, to have time to pray, to have time to do a lot of things that God's called us. And we have to be a slave to His will. Um, <clears throat> John 8, 31 and 32 Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. That word disciples means those that are learning of me. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. God wants you to be free. But at the same time, if you go through all of the epistles, more than once, for more than one writer, they will all say, especially Paul, he says, I'm an apostle, a bondservant. That means I am free in Christ, but I have made myself a slave to Christ's will. I don't care where He calls me. I don't care what He asks me to do. If He asks it, I will answer. I, I've, I've sat through many, hundreds probably. Well, I mean not hundreds. Close to a hundred graduation ceremonies in my teaching career over the years. And listened to a lot of different commencement speakers. You know one thing I have never heard a commencement speaker and if I ever get invited to be a commencement speaker this is going to be my topic. Choose the hard road. Never heard a commencement speaker look at students and say you want to be a success? Choose the hard road. Do what other people aren't willing to do. Work hard. Find something that you're passionate about. Everybody always wants to say, hey, find a way to get your money to work for you, and then you can sit back, you can retire at 30 and just have, you know, be part of the idle rich. If you look at the history of Great Britain back in the uh, 18th, 19th centuries, that was part of, of the reason that that kingdom eventually fell. They were ruled by the idle rich. They did nothing but just sit back and live on the earnings of their, of their money that they had invested. They had no jobs. And they got into all kinds of mischief. The old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop, it's true. There are lots of things that God wants us to have freedom in, but you can only be truly free when you are a servant of Christ. Jesus said it. He said, if you want to be master of all, you have to be servant of all. A paradox. I can only be free by making myself a slave. If I reject slavery and me becoming willingly a slave of Christ, I will never be free. The world out there says, I can do whatever I want. I was born a man, but I choose to be a woman. I got the freedom to do that. Sure. And you're a slave to sin. Paul says that in, in um, Romans chapter 6. We're not going to go th read that. But in verse 7 he says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. You want to live, you have to die. Well, I don't want to die. Well, you don't want to be a Christian then. Because Christians have to die. That's what water baptism is all about. We died to our old life. We died to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Sin shall, does not, shall not have dominion over me. I, sin does not have dominion over me only when I have died to sin and I've been arisen and I live for Christ. When I make myself 
a slave to Christ, then I am free from sin. But I don't have a choice to, to just be free. Verse 18 of Romans 6 says, Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. It's not a choice of being free or slave. It's a choice of who am I going to enslave myself to. Am I going to be a slave to sin and have the enemy just beat my head over, or, you know, a, a bat over my head whenever he chooses? Or am I going to be a slave to righteousness and follow God's ways, follow God's heart, follow God's will, and do what he says and I'm truly free? There is nothing like it. It is the, to be honest with you, it is the, 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 um, the key to Christian living. One last verse and now we're going to pray. 1 Peter 2.16. Peter's talking about having freedom here. Freedom of to do whatever you want. Verse 16 says, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. We can use our freedom and take that liberty and use it as a cloak to be a slave to sin, or we can be a slave of God, a slave to righteousness, and have true freedom. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.